Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for uh, tuning in and listening with us today. This is a big week. I know many of our listeners, if not all of us, are so excited for the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit that's this week in Nashville, Tennessee. Phil, I know that you're going to be there representing, and uh, I think you're probably getting into many things there. Why don't you tell everyone what you're doing at CAFO? Yeah, with as always with CAFO, I, you know, I get to go there and reconnect with a lot of people, a lot of friends, um, get to meet some new friends, uh, hoping if you're out there listening that you'll introduce yourself. And if we don't know each other, if we do, that we can connect for a little bit. Um, I also am going to be facilitating a couple sessions. I'm going to be at the research symposium doing some MC in there. So if you're going to be part of the research symposium, which I hope many of you are, because this, this podcast really... Um, the research symposium is something that does a lot of the same things and has a lot of the same vision and hopes and dreams for us. And that's really collaboration. And so if, if you're not already signed up for that research symposium, try to make it happen. It's on Wednesday, um, which, which is actually tomorrow. So, um, but, uh, you know, I also am excited to be able to do some interviews for the podcast. So if you see me, I'll probably have a handheld or I'll have somebody there with a handheld uh, uh, recorder so that we can be doing some interviews, some on-the-spot interviews, but I'll also have some some other stuff set up to be doing some, some other interviews. Karen and I are going to be doing some recording there as well. So if you see me or if you see Karen, definitely say hi. And, uh, you know, Karen, so what, what are you going to be? I know you're representing on a couple things. So, so what are you going to be sharing with everyone there? Yeah, I'm super excited um, to be a part of CAFO this year. I'm actually going to be um, speaking at the research symposium that you were talking about, Phil, and I'm I'm just thrilled to be a part of that. Um, I'm thrilled that it's even a part of the summit. I'm, I'm just excited to know that um, applied research and best practice is 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 welcome and is and people are excited to hear about those things. So I'm going to be speaking specifically on um, caring for caregivers. And if you guys have listened to the podcast, you've heard me talk about that often. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. Even if I'm not talking about it, I tend to find a way to talk about <laughs> it. And so um, I'm going to be talking about the importance of taking care of ourselves um, when we're taking care of others, particularly with emphasis on secondary stress and vicarious trauma. Yeah, so with that, we got a we got a great show for you today. We we are um I know I'm excited, but when I say we, Karen and I are really excited for you to learn from Delia Pop. If you haven't um, met her, if you haven't learned from her already and heard her speak somewhere or heard her on another podcast or on a video, um, you're in for a treat. She is the Director of Programs and Global Advocacy for Hope and Homes for Children. And it's an organization that's based out of the UK. They're doing work in several different countries. Um, they're big on collaboration, as you'll hear, but they're also really thinking deeply about a lot of the issues that we talk about on this podcast. And so, you know, I'm not even going to give too much more um, about Delia. I am going to tell you today, because the this is a two-part interview, um, and this first one is a little bit longer than than usual, we're, gonna, we're not going to have the Ask Dr. Karen segment today. We're also not going to have thoughts from the field today, but I know that... 
this interview will make up for not having those things because she shares so much wisdom, so many great things that I know I know you will learn from. So, love as always, we'd love to hear back from you, feedback on this. You can give comments on the Think Orphan site. You can give comments on, on Facebook. Uh, rate and review the podcast if, um, you know, if you like it or if you don't. Tell us why you don't. Um, but also, share with us your thoughts because we definitely read them. We definitely take them to heart. And we definitely apply them to hopefully make this show better. So, without any more from us, here's Delia Pop. Well, Delia, it is so great to have you here with us today. Great to be with you, Phil. Yeah, you know, I've been able to get to know you a little bit over the last year or so, and I'm so thankful for it. Um, but I know that a lot of our uh, listeners out there, a lot of folks uh, you know, that are, have downloaded this podcast all around the world, maybe don't know who you are, don't know um, much about the expertise that you have. And so I was hoping that you could just take a minute to kind of briefly share your story with the audience and including how you got involved with caring for orphan and at-risk children, where you work and, and what you do in your role with Hope and Homes for Children. Thank you, Phil. Um, well, I, I have one of those stories that are unique, but in the same time, I believe it will speak to so many people. I'm Romanian. I'm a medical doctor. And I had absolutely no understanding of what Romania was dealing with during the time when Ceausescu was running the country. Um, I lived through that change and I um, realized to my horror that Romania was dealing with a significant problem with over 100,000 children trapped in, in terrible, terrible institutions, really poorly resourced and, and with very little love and care available to them. Um, the awareness of the issue and some circumstances uh, that just happened around me uh, made me change my career from being a medical doctor and training to, to become a, a medical doctor to working in uh, child protection to begin with with local authorities in a very remote northern county of Romania where I managed a network of small group homes dedicated to caring for children who have experienced an entire childhood in the institutional care system. Um, it was a formative experience. Um, those children and the people I worked with, all coming from the institutional care system, taught me a lot uh, and, and made me the person I am today. They helped me understand how I could contribute to, to this issue, how I can support children to reaching their full potential and growing up in, in families. Um, after working in Romania uh, with the state authorities, I joined an organization I'm still with today, Hope and Homes for Children. Um, in 2004, they invited me to take the expertise that I built in Romania and use it across a number of countries. And just to put it as an extra challenge for me, they said, we are going to give you some countries in Africa where you can uh, stretch your, yourself and, and learn how to apply what you've learned in Romania. So I started working across Sierra Leone, Eritrea, Sudan, South Africa, Rwanda, mm. um, until 2007 when, when I took over the entire portfolio of programs for Hope and Homes for Children. At the moment, I'm 
um, the director of programs and global advocacy for Hope and Homes for Children. I am responsible for managing a portfolio of eight country programs, in addition to supporting a host of other countries and partners in their work to help transition children from institutions into family and community-based care. Yeah, and, and it's such important work that you're doing. I've loved to just do the research for this interview, reading a bunch of different things that you guys are doing, um, all of which are, are available um, on your website. Uh, can you just briefly share that so that people out there can, can get access to so much more that we're going to be able to get to, into today? Certainly. Um, anyone who's interested to in learning more about our work can have access to some resources that we make available through the website. The address is hopeandhomes.org. Okay, great. Yeah, and there's so much there. Uh, and I encourage everyone to, you know, to the extent this, this interview piques your interest, which I assume it will, uh, definitely go to that website, get the information, and it will give you as much as you need to really understand these issues at deep levels. Um, so on that note, uh, in your work with uh, Hope and Homes for Children, you really are deeply involved with deinstitutionalization in several countries. It's really kind of the core of your work. Um, can you just discuss what deinstitutionalization is, why it's so important uh, that we understand it? And why it's important to move children out of orphanages. Perfect. Thank you so much, Phil. And I think, you know, we are all very brave individuals using this word, deinstitutionalization. Mm -hmm. Truly, it took me about 17 years to learn how to pronounce it quickly and never be surprised <laughs> when asked the question. Um, I think it's a, it's, it is a, a, an ugly word, as it's so difficult to pronounce, but it's always so important for us to try to explain it, to unpack it and make it accessible to everyone who's interested in actually supporting children and children and families in, in communities. To my mind, um, to our experience as an organization and to what the UN guidelines on alternative care kind of tell us, deinstitutionalization is the process of replacing the use of institutional care with a system that actually supports children with families, first and foremost, preventing their unnecessary separation. And when necessary, the same system provides children with supports in family-based alternative care. The institutionalization, as I uh, sometimes compare it, is always like baking a cake. It is a process that starts with children in institutions and ends with children in families and communities with a lot of support around them. Um, it is and must be implemented with the best interest of the child in mind. And most importantly, it's very different because each institution caters for different children. They come from different backgrounds. They have the different circumstances. They have different needs and abilities. So the institutionalization is almost like a map, a roadmap that helps us understand how best we can manage this process. Um, the institutionalization is by no means closing institutions. That is a byproduct of the process. It's closing the residential aspect of the institution, but in many times, in most of the cases, is a transformative process. It is the process that enables us to change one way of operating and responding to, to a crisis by using residential care in large-scale institutions 
to refining our approach and being able to support children in a timely fashion as necessary, either by supporting them with families or creating alternatives for, for them in families. Um, it, is, it is quite um, quite a process and it requires you know, technical knowledge, uh, but it is accessible to anyone who's interested in, in implementing it. Um, so uh, did I respond adequately to the question of what is the institutionalization? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that that, you know, we can obviously leapfrog off of that a little bit and we will. Um, but if you could just touch on really what are some of the, you know, a lot of people listening probably have heard the reasons why orphanages are, you know, aren't the best yep. place for children's. But can you can you uh, speak to that? Absolutely. Well, I think there are probably four different layers to answering this question. What we know, and we know it from years and years ago, is that institutional care is really not beneficial for children. And what the science tells us is that it is quite toxic, for, especially for young children. Nevertheless, older children and children with disability are very much at risk by being placed in such services. And no matter how hard we try to improve that element, the, the neuroscience tells us that children in that particular environment, because they cannot receive that one-to-one -one attention, that love and care, stimulation that children need to receive in order to grow to their full potential, they will always lead to children experiencing delay in their development, emotional, cognitive, uh, quite severe behavioral issues or emotional consequences. So we know, and the science tells us, that institutional care has a detrimental impact on children's development. What else do we know? We know that most of the children in orphanages are not orphans. So we know that this system creates a sort of a pool effect where children are being placed in institutions because of reasons that have nothing to do with the parents' willingness or love that they have to care for their children. I'll give you a simple example. And I, I just came back from a, from a visit to Zambia where 68% of the children placed in institutions are placed by their parents in order to access education. So my question is, do we need institutions? Do we need to set up orphanages or do we need to think of solutions to enable those families to send not one child, but all their children to uh, school and, and create those, those um, channels and investments so that children can, can access education? What else do we know about institutional care? So we know it has... Um, an impact on children's development. We know that it, in institutional care, the prevalence, the incidence of abuse, neglect, including sexual abuse and, and sexual violence is much higher than in a general population. And there are plenty of studies available um, to document this. And most of the information actually comes from children who have been asked to, to share their experiences in, in such environments. We know that institutions actually try to respond to a situation providing one type of solution um, to a multitude of needs and circumstances. It's, it's a bit of a one solution fits all, and that's why institutions kind of fail to, to deliver for children. We also know 
that investing in institutional care, it's not the best investment. We are not getting the highest impact for the best outcome for children. And I will explain why. Just think about this one-way highway. We have families who experience risks and vulnerabilities. And your listeners will probably recognize, and you know what, this is across the world, single parent families, families where parents experience mental health or health issues, uh, families who have more than the typical number of children in a family, family who are very poor, marginalized, isolated in their communities. So these families are all experiencing a number of risk factors. Now, in a system that relies on orphanage care or institutional care, there is no support provided to the families. And what happens is one little change in the circumstances of these families lead to a crisis. And then the orphanages will come in as a solution. Either we separate the child from the family because the crisis really has an impact on the well-being of the child, or children run away from home because they can't cope with not having something to eat, not being able to, to do certain, certain things. So we then commit children to institutional care. And we know from statistics that children will be in, once entering institutional care, they're very likely to spend their entire childhood there. Mm. So that's quite a significant investment. You know, per month, we spend 500 to $1,000 per child supporting that child through a system that, no, we know it does not deliver huge outcomes for children. Now, just think about the power of those, you know, 500 to 1,000 pounds per month okay. being spent for and with the family, supporting the entire family to become stronger and therefore not only having an impact on one child, but really building a future uh, for that family and for the children who might come along in that family. And therefore, our investment is, is so much more productive. Um, to sum up, institutions do have a negative impact on, on children. They do have a negative impact on families because they force them to make decisions to separate from their children. And they do have a, an impact on societies as, as a whole. Um, they do represent a, a really poor investment of our very limited resources. Mm. Yeah, no, and and it's that's such a great summary. Thank you so much for those for those wise words. Um, but I got I want to ask you know real quick, uh, based on your experiences research, are there ever instances where orphanages are necessary? Uh, what I would say is that the evidence tells us that we need different solutions for us to be able to support children in the most suitable way. Now, um, I know in some of our previous discussions, we spoke a little bit about the principles that underpin the UN guidelines on alternative care. And there are two very simple principles that one, if one practitioner applies in the day-to-day, -day, uh, we are more likely to be better supporting children. One is the principle of necessity. Uh, is it necessary to separate a child from a family? Um, and the other one is the principle of suitability. And that principle tells us that if the separation is necessary, what we need is to have in place 
suitable services to respond to the specific needs and circumstances of that child at that point in time. And not only that, but to review that service as we go along to ensure that we always match the needs and circumstances of a child until and with a focus to see that child or young person moving into back into families or independent living in the community. And this is where um, the principle of suitability actually pushes us to think through a range of alternatives that we need for children. We can't solve the problem just with reintegration. We can't solve or respond to the children's needs and circumstances only with kinship care, only with foster care. So we need to have a range. And this is where, and that will, I will uh, be very specific here, residential care is a, a, a necessary service that we need to have available for certain children to respond to certain needs and circumstances. To my experience, and I have, I've been working in this field for 17 years, and all the literature that I read clarified to me that institutions, orphanages, large residential care facilities governed by routines and by non-individualized support are not required. They are not necessarily. And we can actually put them to, into history books. That's, that's my dream. But... We need to always pursue excellence in what we do. And, and that means that we need to develop all the services that children might need. I've seen um, small, I, I manage small group homes in my first ever job. And I saw the beneficial impact on children. I saw how I enabled those children who were deeply traumatized by their experiences in institutional care moving and receiving support in that service and being able then to move out of that service into communities, into foster care, or some of them continuing to, to live in, in, in supported uh, residential care because of their um, more complex needs and circumstances. Mm -hmm. So to, to wrap it up in a, in a very short kind of summary way, to my mind, to the evidence that I, I read and I'm aware of, Institutional care is not necessary. Residential care, it is part of our ability to supporting children alongside foster care, kinship care, any other forms of family-based care. Right. For the specific, that specific situations that you just talked about there. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Now, you, you talked about earlier that you work in several different countries and you're doing yes. this work in several different countries. Um, we all understand if we've traveled at all, that countries are different. Oh and I imagine the implementation of these, these practices, these best practices that, that you have talked about and that you talk more mm -hmm. about on the website looks different in each country. How do you go about, um, really studying that and understanding the differences in each country and mm -hmm. really, uh, going in as an outsider coming yes. in to implement these strategies with people who probably have never heard of it? Absolutely. I mean, it's such an important question. And I think we all need to be so aware that we are not really 
taking a blueprint and replicating the same methodologies country after country, we need to be really sensitive to understanding cultural issues, to understanding the reasons why children are being separated in in those countries. What are the risks and vulnerabilities? How we can best support them? What are the traditional ways of supporting children? And what are the traditional ways of those communities to deal with child protection issues? what I've learned from, from the practice um, are two very important things. One is that you can, once you have a, a body of good practice, you can elevate and take the principles out of that best practice. And that will help you frame your approach. It will give you, you know, the big roadmap of what are the key steps that one needs to take in order to be able to implement that best practice in that context. The other learning is that, as you said, each country is different. Engaging with local communities, working with the key stakeholders that have a buy-in already, they're there because they want to support children, is absolutely critical. Um, I'll give you the example of our work. All our work at national level is being implemented by local teams. We would not even <laughs> dare to dream to be able to to just take our, you know, kind of pre-made model and implement it in a country without... Uh, um, any doubt without consulting, having a local team, understanding what are the local the local processes. For for my teams, I help them kind of synthesize what are the key steps in taking the the, the institutionalization process forward um, in in five steps. And I always advise my teams to look at these five steps and ask the right questions. The first one, and I always say that. In no matter in which country we are, we need to engage with those who are preoccupied uh, supporting children, with children and families themselves. Now, this is the engagement work is absolutely critical, not only because it enables us to understand where is the problem, if there are any problems, but also it helps us understand what are the local solutions, what are the local perceptions of of orphanages, what are the local perceptions of the problems that children are facing. And it's an amazing trust-building opportunity. And you know what? It's it's NGOs, it's government partners, it's faith-based partners, all the all the critical stakeholders, and you know, I'm trying to avoid the word stakeholders, all the parties who are or have a buy-in in supporting children need to be part of that engagement. Mm-hmm. And it is learning for that person or the organization who does the engagement, but is also learning for them. You all it's almost like a concert. You help people kind of resonate around the issue of what children need. Now, this is a a fantastic opportunity to share the knowledge that one has around what's best for children. And I would say that I've learned in, in my practice never to assume that people know why orphanages are not working for children, what are the UN guidelines on alternative care, what is the evidence that one has, you know, it so it's it's a great opportunity to to sharing the second step in designing your work to helping transitioning children from institutions into family and community based care it's all around gathering the data about learning who are the children 
who are at risk. And to begin with, who are the children who are already separated from their families? Mm. What actually happened with them? What were the circumstances of their separation? Who brought them in? Um, what were the channels? Were they, you know, uh, did they come from hospitals or were they brought by relatives or by their own parents? At what age? Uh, and what was the declared reason for, for that? That kind of, and also finding out from families what were the circumstances that led them to, to um, placing their children in institutions. Now, that kind of work is not only continuing the engagement and helps you consolidate that knowledge of, of the problem, but also it starts building a dialogue with those who will most benefit from the work and the intervention that you're putting in place. Once you have all this data, you can actually sit down around the table with, with the key individuals and organizations that have a, a stake in resolving the issue, and you can use the data to plan the work ahead. Um, in India, we found, for example, that children are being placed in institutions. They are mostly children who have been rescued from trafficking, from uh, bonded labor, from um, sexual exploitation. So those children actually were sometimes trafficked by their own families into this. Mm -hmm. It gives you an understanding of where you need to put in place the preventative measures, as well as how you need to support and treat those children so that their transition is in the best interest into the best families and with all the supports that one needs. Right. The, third, the third step is this one, is basically designing, designing the steps, the services that you need. Again, not trying to replicate you know, a foster care system that might not work in a Western country to implement it into a country that has never heard of foster care. It's looking at what kind of alternatives are already available in those, in those countries and, and contexts. The next, the following step is, is all about transition supporting transition for children, for families, for people who work in institutions is absolutely critical for the success of the process. Um, and when children are in communities, in various services, uh, that's when the hard work starts. The last step is all about measuring impact. And I know it's not uh, a very sexy subject or monitoring evaluation and, and, and what but that helps us with building sustainability of everything we do. If we know that what we do delivers the right results for children, then we will be able to argue for others to take on board the same approach. We would be able to argue with the government to put some funding in to sustain or scale up the services that, that we develop. It is very, you have to be aware of the context. You have to do your analysis. You have to connect with local um, organizations and individuals, and most importantly, with children and families. And if you follow a number of steps to guide you through this very complex process, you're more likely to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, when you're talking about the transition and successful mm -hmm. transition uh, in, out of institution into family care, into foster, into some other care, Yes. Um, or even determining if a child is coming straight out of trafficking or set other situation that's just super traumatic. Yes. Um, and maybe they do need to go into that, that institution for More a, protected, for a period, residential care. Right. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, the res exactly. The residential mm -hmm. care, ideally. Um, 
that 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 implies the best interest of the child determination that we've talked about that 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 term is used so often but what's what's kind of lost in that conversation sometimes is how that determination is made and who makes it and practically speaking when we have different worldviews different cultures so many other things at play as we even talked about a little bit before the interview it could be just the judge of, or the person making the determination having a bad day potentially. But how can we ensure that, you know, really that determination is made in such a way that all of these things that you've been talking about so far today are, are uh, considered and, and put into the, the determination? Absolutely. Well, it's, it's such, a, such an important, you know, principle that should, and process that should sit at the foundation of everything we do uh, with and for the children. I would say very simply um, is one, making sure that the child and the family is involved in the process. Uh, First and foremost, children should be uh, helped and consulted and involved in, in, in making the decisions for themselves and being part of that decision making. And no matter, you know, age or ability, there are, there are ways in which we can ensure that children are part and supportive and, and you know, leading this whole conversation about what next for them. Um, without children being part of the decision, without them being enabled to lead the decision-making process, um, it's, we, are not, we are not leading in, in the right direction. Then the second ingredient is about really looking at what what we know and what the let's say the the most internationally recognized treaty um, is is the convention on the rights of the child mm-hmm. and the convention in in the preamble actually gives us some guidance the convention tells us that the best place where children should grow thrive and be supported is the family whatever that family unit looks like um, what else does the, the preamble tells us? The convention also tells us that a loving, caring, supportive and safe environment is what is in the best interest of the child. And then when this becomes a process in a child protection system in a country, uh, to avoid that situation that you highlighted with the judge not feeling, you know, having a bad day and making all the bad decisions, there needs, to, there needs to be a team around the child. You need to have professionals that are empowered, educated, responsible, and, and fully you know, briefed into how to apply the process of the best interest of the child to work together with the child to decide what is the best next step. Mm-hmm. There are there are some good resources, Phil. Now that I'm thinking, um, the Committee on the Rights of the Child issued a couple of um, comments. I think there is a general comment on the best interest of the child, mm-hmm. and I think also in the UN guidelines uh, on alternative care, there are there are a couple of sections that give examples and talk about mecha- mechanisms and and setups where. Um, you know, you can create the right environment for the process of determining what is in the best interest of the child is, is you know, is, is the right, right environment and the right circumstances. Right. And we'll, we'll link to those, uh, definitely link to those resources in the show notes for this, for this episode. Um, now I want to kind of take this down to another practical level where we're talking Please. about, uh, how we can engage, uh, communities, churches, other financial partners, um, 
to get them to understand these complex concepts that often completely off, I mean, completely shift their paradigms, mindsets, and just mess with their worldviews in ways. Yeah. Um, cause a lot of these are brand new to, to yep. the, to the, to the stage, so to speak. And for people who haven't been involved as you and I have, they've yep. never heard of these concepts. So how can we get these really, you know, at, at broad level sometimes, but also on, on individual levels, what, where, where would, what do you do to get people to understand these issues? Oh, I, the, there are various, various ways in which we can, we can really enhance this engagement work. And I think, you know, it's such a critical, uh, point in, in our endeavor to, to support and best support children in communities. Um, I think engagement is by, as, as we discussed before, sharing the information that we know. I, I think not being afraid of, of calling the truth the truth, not mm-hmm. being afraid of actually sharing with people the the negative impacts of institutional care, that doesn't mean that we are judgmental or we are looking down to those who are running institutions. By no means. Mm-hmm. We are just sharing information that we were most fortunate to have access to so they can they can you know kind of get access to the same and enable their transition we need people who are supporting children to continue working with them we need their skills their understanding of the children but what we are saying here is that they can deliver more with what they already have on the ground they can probably increase their impact and the outcomes for the children they so love and care for 10 to 100 times so it's i've learned that it's really truly important to be truthful to be open to not to apply any kind of heavy makeover because it's not we are not feeling guilty and we are not making people feeling guilty we are here to represent and and help children realize their potential and we are all here together to help determine what's in the best interest of, of the child in a way that is is consistent with cultural practices, with sustainability, with with the best practice that is is set up worldwide. Yeah. The other aspect of engagement, and I think is so important, is is child participation, is helping children and young people who have experienced the care and who have experienced you know the caring community to become contributors, to be the actors that they need to be in this conversation. Helping families, young people to, to share their experience, to help with the engagement of, of these uh, uh, community leaders is absolutely critical. Mm. I'll tell you an example of an amazing leader um, I met in Uganda. She is a pastor. Um, she started her work supporting HIV and AIDS uh, affected people when that was a taboo in the community where she was working. Um, she, she, she is an extraordinary, inspiring individual. Um, and she moved on to supporting children. And of course, she set up a, an orphanage. And and when I met her, she already made a commitment to changing her model from supporting children in an orphanage to supporting children in communities and, and with families. And the turning point to her was when she heard a young person um, who was a parent himself talking about what he is missing from being growing up in an orphanage. Um, 
the fact that he had no grandparents available for his children, the fact that there were no kind of parents to go out for holidays, um, that really truly had a, a significant impact on Pastor Ruth. And, and for her, that was a critical turning point. She said, I had all the good intentions, but I did not realize how profound is that. And, and one particular quote of this young person said, she said, my parents, our parents are not paid to be parents. The staff in the institution was paid to do her their jobs and to come into shifts and so on and so forth. So that's a second aspect. And I think it's, it's quite important for us to consider how we can um, empower uh, those who have experienced orphanages or those who are uh, now living in communities to contribute, including families who are receiving support and are, are, you know, kind of now in a better place, not having to make decisions to separate from their children. Last but not least, I think engagement is all about creating opportunities between peers to talk to talk about their work, to talk about their challenges, to talk about their successes. The best advocate for the institutionalization that I've ever met was a director of an institution for babies um, in Romania. And she was the strongest advocate against the work that we were mm. trying to put in place there. And this woman, really, she had all the good intentions. She was a, a trained psychologist or psychopedagogue, I think. Um, she made significant changes, improved the orphanage dramatically. Uh, and she could not, to begin with, could not understand why we were targeting, you know, the, the, the transition for, for that institution. Halfway through the process, when she had the opportunity to see the kids transitioned into families and see how they would completely transform in that environment, um, she became the best advocate possible. Mm. So the, the, those who are still, you know, running orphanages or they are, they are considering transitioning, they are one of our greatest assets right. um, to to help with engagement. And the language needs to be simple. The language is translated already in materials that speak with different groups, you know, the, mm -hmm. the work that Faith to Action put in place uh, to, to help um, the word that um, connected, I think, with ACCI, with right. Rebecca Knapp. Um, that is amazing material that mm -hmm. I think speaks to to certain groups in in a language that is perfectly understood by by those by those groups, but also embeds uh, the knowledge that we have from from the you know kind of more clinical professional understanding of of the issue. Right. Yeah, and I know you have some good materials on that as well on your on your website. But the ACCI connected in Faith Action will have all those resources on on the. Um, on the uh, show notes for this episode. Also for Rebecca Knapp um, and the connected work, we, we had her on a couple episodes in seasons one and two, so you can go back and listen to those as well. I encourage you to do that out there if you're really into what we're talking about today. Um, the one area too that is, you know, absolutely been covered a lot over the last few years and especially the last year or so I've seen so much written on and talked about volunteerism particularly in orphanages um, I, you know there's so much out there on all the ills of, of what 
uh, we should not be doing. What I'd yeah. like you to focus on today um, for our for our audience are, are ways that you really think that you can engage in orphan care through whether it's short term trips, long term missions, whatever it may be, to going somewhere that you aren't based, so to speak, or even it could be locally in your community. How can mm-hmm. you best work with children that are from hard places, children that are, um, you know, at risk or orphaned in ways that are going to help more than hurt? I think this is this is such an important question. And I, I'm I'm grateful, Phil, that you kind of highlighted how how much we already spoke and how much evidence is that there 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 could be some serious significant negative consequences or, or on children. Um and I think this is this needs to be acknowledged. This is the first step that one needs to to take on board. Okay, if 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 this kind of short-term volunteering with children is not the right way, then what are the alternatives? What can we do and how can we contribute to achieving something, to supporting children? And I think there are various models and ways in which people can get themselves involved in a way that will not um, be um, of negative impact on children, but will actually contribute to the community work, to to the work that one organization does, to to resolving the bigger problem. So I, I would just refer to a couple of couple of these issues. Now I know that there are organizations who organize short term trips and and sometimes us as an organization we organize, we are very careful at at uh, curating these uh, short trips not too many over the years, so they are not a burden on our staff and, of course, on children and families. But those are learning trips. Those are trips that are dedicated for those individuals who really want to understand the issue, and then they can become advocates or they can support with fundraising. They can really then become stronger in in arguing and supporting the transition from donating to an orphanage, to donating to a community, because we know that there are a lot of issues and a lot of problems. And maybe, you know, there is a journey that we need to to undertake to help individuals who want to support children, to put their money to where it has the best impact and the best outcome for, for children. So that those kind of short trips are, are really, they need to be well managed. They need to be well supported. They need to have the right people on board. So at the end of the trip, you end up with a team that goes back home to their communities, to their churches, to to their friends, and is able to actually present the situation as it is and talk about what are the alternatives to orphanages? How can they best support children in communities and children in families? And what are the alternatives that uh, we can create in foster care and, and small group homes, etc., to support those children who do not have parents or cannot return to, to their families? Mm-hmm. Another, another model that is, is used by bigger you know, organizations that work with volunteers is basically to create a, a sort of a, 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 a depository or repository of skills. So you have people who have different skills. They come from a professional background or they volunteered in their own communities and, and they can offer that particular skill to improving an organization, working with a local church, helping a community-based program, supporting a school, etc., etc. Now, if these individuals are 
trained, supported, inducted, their skills can actually contribute miles and miles more than just through a sort of an informal short-term interaction. They will be put into building an organization, into supporting that organization to become stronger, more accountable, etc., etc. And here, this is where, you know, skills, accountancy skills, capacity building, teaching, learning, etc., all those can really be harmonized and, and harnessed in a way that is not going to overwhelm a local partner, but it will help that organization to be better at fundraising, to be better at programming, to be better at delivering services for, for children. Um, I think mentoring and, and kind of coaching, especially with those individuals who have, you know, they come from very similar professional backgrounds, uh, maybe working with children in the countries where they are or understanding working with teenagers or working in the education system. Again, those individuals can be uh, coaches or mentors for local staff, for individuals in the countries where the support is being provided in a way that is so meaningful. And that's, you know, it, it is a relationship that can be maintained over Skype. You know, these days we we do have the advantage of, of being able to communicate. We don't have to fly to be present in that environment at all times. So an initial visit can be then follow up by, by long-term, long-term support. In terms of working directly with children, I do have, you know, I'm a professional. I'm a medical doctor. I've been trained in several um, techniques in working with children with special needs and, and challenging behaviors. I can only practice this work in a country where culturally I understand where the kids are coming from and I can interact with them in my language. Um, and, and that is, that is uh, uh, the limitation of, of what I can do directly with children because otherwise I would be in a place where I could actually harm them. Mm. I won't understand how my knowledge actually has an impact on them or how my interventions, you know, are translated into that particular context. So I, I, I think those professionals who, who have experience or are licensed to work with, with children uh, could provide mentoring support to professionals in other countries who might not have had access to the same kind of um, experience, education, learning, etc., for all those individuals who we bring to connect with the children and families we are supporting, it is absolutely essential to ensure that they are, you know, checked and vetted, that we are not allowing any ones with bad intentions to seep, seep through a system that is meant to first and foremost protect children. Um, children are especially those who are in, in orphanages are extremely vulnerable. They, I, I remember meeting um, a young person in Cambodia and she had an experience of growing up in an institution. Um, and she told us about her experience with volunteers and she told us how she felt abandoned and she felt like she made some mistakes or she wasn't inadequate. She was inadequate because she felt that every time, every week or two weeks when a, a new volunteer would come to, to play with her, um, she would be abandoned again. So it is I, not only that we have the evidence, but we have the knowledge that interaction on short-term basis with children 
is really more damaging to children than than not not interacting with them. But as I said before, there are many ways in which we can harness the willingness, the passion, the mm-hmm. skills, the abilities of the people who are keen to support through advocacy, fundraising, mentoring, coaching, supporting organizations into the development of their capacities and, and plans, helping with communication, helping with website development, helping organizations to, to reach their, their potential and, and deliver on, on their mission. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. Great uh encouragement too i think to a lot of people out there who do have a passion for this you know they've heard probably a lot of people saying don't do it don't do it don't do it but and and that is the case in some instances but i think there are ways like you said to harness the just the passion and to be able to encourage people to do it well because i mean i i would have to guess that if someone has that passion the last thing they want to do is hurt these kids that they want to go absolutely absolutely and i think you know the more the more we are able to to explain again without guilt or you know without additional makeover necessary that the, that that kind of interaction is not beneficial for the child someone who has all the good intentions will be more more than happy to listen and and find alternatives to harness that potential well, there are some interviews that I've done that I've just come out of and just been completely, completely blown away um, by the humility, by the wisdom, um, by the experience, just by a person who truly gets it. And I felt that way um, throughout the entire interview with Delia. And then listening back again, I was reminded why I was so blown away. Um, I, I'll share a little bit more about that, but I want to go to you first, Karen. What do what, what you think? You know, when we were talking before we started recording, Phil, I think that that's one of, we were talking, I was sharing that, just listening to Delia and listening to her even responses to you, it was incredibly encouraging to me. And there was just so much intentionality with with which she even responded to your questions. And it was endearing to me. I felt like I want to, I want to meet this woman. I want to have coffee with her. Like, can I go like hang out with her for two weeks? It was incredibly encouraging, but also helped me to understand the importance of being humble and of presenting even incredibly factual information with kindness. I feel like here's this woman who is literally um, an expert in this area and all of her responses to even questions that are controversial and questions that have hard answers. Her responses were thought-filled and grace-filled and it was encouraging to me and a, a good reminder that these topics that we're talking about, they, they do have high emotion and there isn't one correct answer for even within a certain country that there's a range of alternatives that are going to best help children and teenagers and families. And again, I was just really appreciative and encouraged by even her thoughtfulness in responding to you, Phil. Yeah. And there's so many topics she covered. Um, and, and in part two, which you'll hear, she covers so many more. I'm, I'm not even going to give away what she talks about, but because I know you want to come back and listen and you will learn more next week when we, when we air that part two, or if you're binge listening, you'll hear it right after this one. Um, but one of the things I want to touch on, you know, she talked about deinstitutionalization. She talked about institutions and you talked about 
how she really had a grace-filled response. So when she talked about institutions and really even saying there is no place for institutional care on a large scale, she also said, though, there are certain specific instances where residential care may be appropriate. And she was very careful in that, but also said, I understand this is nuanced. There are issues that we really don't totally get yet. There are certain circumstances that we don't understand. And you know, one of the things that's really what I want to touch on here, the five steps she talked on to work cross-culturally, to work towards that deinstitutionalization, is something that was so powerful for me. I'm not going to rehash them right now. Go rewind this right now if you don't have that firmly grasp in your mind. But those five steps she gave are so powerful. But the other thing she talked about, and I'm so glad to hear that it's not just uh, me who has a problem with the word deinstitutionalization. It is hard to pronounce. It is a mouthful. And you know, you people out there, you probably feel the same way. So you're not alone. And that's the other reason we're here for each other to remember that we're not alone in painful words that are hard to pronounce. So back to you, Karen, you know, what, what more out of that? Like some specifics, I want to hear some specifics that you have from that conversation. Yeah, that was a great reminder, Phil. I loved your uh, humor in that. I think just from, um, you know, I didn't spend a ton of time living overseas, but the time that we were able to live um, in East Africa, one of the things that just stood out to me so vividly in my time living there was um, when I was working with alternative care programs in Uganda, just the societal impact of um, institutionalizations and how that really impacts a society and not not just families but it, not just the child but that it, it does impact the society and it's a long-term impact and you know coming back to the states and and reacclimating and and trying to you know again be intentional in the time that we spent over there and coming back and sharing and, and hoping to be able to to impact um from even a distance, the the work that's going on and helping helping even Americans to understand that it isn't just the child. Yes, we want to have um, orphan care in the best possible way. Yes, we want to impact and support families um, in developing countries. But understanding that this is also a bigger issue that impacts entire societies. And I loved the way that she talked through that and provided the information related to um, deinstitutionalization. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things I really like is just embedded in all her responses is the idea of collaboration, the idea of working well with others. And I love what she said. Engagement is all about creating opportunities between peers to talk. That's why we engage things so we can engage each other, so we can really have healthy conversations. Um, you know, and that actually leads well and segues well into the recommendations today. So do you have anything more before I go into that, Karen? No, I think that you did a great job wrapping that up. Um, you know, it's just a, a wonderful amount of information that she shared and you guys have to tune in for the next part of it. You don't want to miss that. Yeah, I definitely agree. You definitely 
are, I, and I assume that we don't even need to tell you that, that you're excited for the part two. You're excited that there is actually more to come from Delia. But the, the recommendation in the Phil and Karen Recommends segment today, there's actually two of them today, and they, they, they relate to each other. They're totally not from the world of Morphin Care. Um, one is a secular book, actually. It's called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And he really talks about just the, the differences between a liberal and a conservative mind. It's not really a political book. It, it, it touches on politics, but it's more from the philosophy and just how our mind works and really the foundations of societies. And it's, it's a fantastic book that was recommended to me just to really get me thinking about people that I may not agree with and how they think and why they think the way they think. And, it, and it's really, it was really interesting to me. And I, and I imagine it will be to you as well. Um, if you get into the philosophy, you'll really enjoy it. If you don't, it might be a tough read um, if you're not already in that world, so to speak. But it's definitely worth your time to to understand better, especially in the world today where we go on Facebook and we just see hatred and we see vitriol and we see people that seemingly are so far apart from each other. And a lot of times they are. And this guy really goes into it and studies it and researches it and just tries to understand why is it that we're so far, far apart in our societies. Um, and it's not unique to the U.S. today. Um, it is everywhere and it's throughout history. It's been that way. And so I encourage you to, to go check that out. And the other one is Reclaiming Hope by Michael Ware. Um, it's a book. He actually served in the Obama White House. And he talks about um, his experience there, but it's, it's not a memoirs book. It's really a book. How can we um, really engage these conversations with each other in healthy ways? How can we kind of reclaim the hope of the gospel in the midst of this brokenness in our government, in the brokenness in our world today um, that seem is so partisan, it's so divided. And so he really does paint a picture of how we can engage it um, with hope. And it, and it really applies to us, I think, because even Delia Pop in, in her interview talked about issues that are divisive, that are dividing a lot of people in orphan care. And if you've been involved in this at all for any amount of time, you know that if you just say the word orphanage in a room full of people that are orphan care advocates, you're going to get all kinds of faces. You're going to get visceral responses from people. Good, bad, indifferent. Um, indifferent really is not one that comes up very often. It's, it's just people that have these really strong beliefs and strong opinions and strong views on things. And they're, they're all coming from a place of, of experience and, you know, different, uh, research and so on. So to really understand each other takes getting to know people. It takes taking time to really dig into that argument. And so I think that Michael gives us a great picture of that in a very divisive world. So with those recommendations, we're going to, we're going to tie this, uh, this episode up and, and, uh, I am excited for CAFO this week. If you're going to be there again, reach out, uh, introduce yourself to me, or if, if we know each other already, definitely reconnect. And I know Karen feels the same way. So um, with all the stuff we've learned today, as always, I hope that you take it and I hope that you really seek to love orphans and at-risk children more and more and better and better every day. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. 
You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.